The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and, of course, past performance does not guarantee future returns. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. going back what is wrong with you no it just, it's like this Simpsons thing it's like why are you booing I'm right I was, <laughs> like, I was cheering everyone that was smashing you I was like fucking yeah, smash yeah, yeah. him go again hit yeah. him again fucking hit him in the balls <laughs> Welcome to Gone By Lunchtime. We're back after quite a long time away, during which you know you've had that sort of sinking feeling, a bit of emptiness. You thought it was seasonal disorder, but actually it was just missing the pod, a bit of ennui, a bit of you felt uh, pod forsaken. There's a good reason <laughs> for the absence. Mm. It's because two thirds of the Gone By Lunchtime voices have been struck down by a novel coronavirus. Annabelle, you were first. Ben, you were second. Mm. Now, you already were two of New Zealand's leading epidemiologists. Mm. And now I've got lived experience. Now you have lived so, experience. you want to go first, Annabelle? How, how, how are you all right? How are you? I'm fine. I was very lucky. It was a very mild infection, but very, very catchy. Who knew? But anyway... I got it, and trying to isolate from my kids, which I was quite excited about. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I'm moving downstairs. Bye, everybody. Um, Didn't last long, though, because kids want to have, like, cuddles and affection and parenting and all that. What not? Infection, affection. They just want to do what mum's doing. I suffer from the (laughs) predations of the novel coronavirus. Exactly. So it went through our household pretty quick, and I was freaked out because, obviously, my portiki is too young to have any vaccinations. Yeah. But they were literally asymptomatic, which right. meant that I was home with these two, like, hyped-up <laughs> kids. There's no, like, fevery naps, afternoon <laughs> naps, where I can yeah. sneak off and watch Netflix So they tested, they tested positive. They, 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 they were, ended up testing oh, they, positive, oh, yeah. Well, I think I actually relief, got really, it from it? my baby. Okay. I think my portiki gave it to me. Um, well, I'm glad you are okay. We Thank were thinking you. of you as we were when Ben was was struck down by the wrath mm. when I was left COVID. when I was left behind by an uncaring government that is letting it rip. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I got a call from my friend who I'd had a beer with the previous Friday. This was like last Tuesday, I think, and she was like, "Ah, oh, I've got I've got the Rona. You probably need to get tested." Mm. You know, so. I, I sort of felt like maybe I had a little, a little bit of cold coming on, like a little throat tingle. 
and then, you know, I, I dutifully swabbed. I was like, I'm going to be fine. I didn't see anything come up. And then after, you know, 15 minutes, I was like staring at it. And there's this tiny little faint indent sort of line yeah. on the test yeah. thing. Mm. Mm. And then just suddenly it went downhill, you know, within 20 minutes. I was, I was like, okay, that's it. It's got me, you know. Yeah. Cold sweats, shivering, <laughs> and t- total body fatigue. <laughs> Just sort of like, you know, don't cry for me. I'm already dead. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. uh, and then to three days later, I was fine. But it was pretty. It was well, pretty thank dicey God for, for a while. Yeah. Thank God for yeah. vaccinations, right? You know, oh, yeah, that's yeah. rough. You know, and honestly, it made me feel so aroha for everyone who got it in in 2020 and 2021. I yeah. just thought, man, yeah. we are so lucky. Yeah. Because I mean, we got a mold strain, but I've heard some horror stories from people that I know and, yeah. That's right. And it's not even clear, really, that the Omicron strain is mild. It's just that, you know, the majority of people are vaxxed across the Western world now. Um, And, yeah, I was was certainly thankful for my triple triple ring, uh, my boosters. Um, And I'm keen to get another one. Yeah. Yeah. I'm middle class. If it's free, I want want anything that's on offer. Old enough yet. But um, (laughs) T.I. Butler... New Zealand's best podcast producer. Mm. Have you get COVID yet? You haven't had it yet, have you? No, I've managed to dodge it so far. Oh, Despite hanging out I. with a lot of podcast hosts mm. in an unventilated <laughs> studio. Yeah. Who have subsequently... I've not had it either. I think you and I are the last people in New Zealand not to have had COVID. Yeah, I think that's correct. The thing that's annoying is I, I was so convinced that I wasn't going to get it. Right. Like, I'd really convinced myself, because I'd had some brushes with covid people and not got it. And I thought, well, it makes sense. I'm Ngaitahu, I'm Kahunganu. I grew up on Waiheke, like mm. I'm just this like superior human. 99.6 natural immunity, that's yeah. what you're always yeah. banging on about. And then I got it. <laughs> it was funny too because I had to, the day that I got it, I woke up with a bit of a headache, did a rat test, it was negative. It was kind of low-key hoping it might be positive because it's quite a long drive all the way there and all the way back in one day. So anyway, it wasn't. So I went, had a hui, and then um, came back. And on the way back, uh, I had the heater on full bore. And my friend who was with me, I turned to her. I was like, are you cold? Mm. She's like, no, your heater's on like <laughs> 50 degrees. And I was like, oh, cold. Oh. And I got home and tested and sure enough. We are going to talk a bit about the COVID response in a minute. We're also going to talk about, we've got so much to talk about. We've kind of missed almost a month, I think. I mean, you know, it's devastating for the people of New Zealand. We're going to talk about it. Do you think it was, or do you think it was like a little holiday? I I got two messages about it. Oh, you did? I got one. I got one. I got nothing. I think everyone was just relieved to be shot of me for a while. (laughs) Well, it's not compulsory to listen to the podcast. This is true. Wait, what? We're going to talk also about... It should be mandatory. Was this not even addressed during the stand-up on, like, next steps for, like, orange? Oh, not in orange. It's not compulsory yeah. in orange. In red, it's compulsory just in case there are some important public health messages yeah, you've got to, that you're going to get from the true authorities. St- stay tuned mm. to the wireless. Did you see Did you see the PSA they're running in New York City now about what to do if there's a nuclear strike? No. Oh, good. They're running public service announcements about what, and and they start off by saying there's been a nuclear strike. It doesn't matter how or why. <laughs> it's like huh. apparently it's the it's the first time they've run uh, nuclear strike PSAs in New York since 1962, I think. Wow. Wow. So, um, 
They're just into it now. Let's just do them. More messages. I remember... It's just like, while everyone's listening, while everyone's receptive to public health messages, let's, let's get yeah. it all out Remind of them that there could also be a nuclear <laughs> apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. I remember yeah. as a child being quite haunted <clears throat> by the inside front page, I think it was, of the telephone book, which for younger listeners, listeners oh, was yes. a, a printed product that included the telephone numbers of almost everybody. Yeah. And uh, there was a, it, was a, it was a tsunami... We used to call it tidal wave, but I think it was a tsunami. Yeah. And what it said are the lines that have stuck with me to this day where, if you can see it, it's too late. <laughs> with a picture of a big wave, I think. Yeah, with a scary-looking wave, almost like a shark. You know, yeah. and, and I haven't smiled since, <laughs> to be this, honest. This is, essentially, this is essentially how I felt with my rat test. Like As soon as that line mm. came up, I was like, it's... It's too late. Just mm. went full Kathy from Wuthering Heights, just descent immediately. <laughs> My Toa from Pa had the most innovative use of the yellow pages, which was she would literally hammer it into her, um, onto the door of her cupboard, mm. and then she'd open it up, rip a page off, twist it, put it in her coal range, and use it to light her um, ciggies. Wow. Cool, eh? She was a gangster. That was my auntie Nixon. That's the the true number eight wire spirit. We're also going to talk about um, Te Pāti Māori and their AGM, the Ag Party and the conference and stuff there. Bit of other bits and bobs. We'll do it kind of shopping list style because we've already blathered on for long enough. Can we do the good stuff and skip the boring stuff? Well, let's do quickly COVID because it is. We did. Because it is, you did. Um, I we, we, we've covered we the main developments of COVID nineteen yeah. over the last two yeah. weeks. <laughs> Just in case anyone missed Doctor Ashley Bloomfield's twelve o'clock case update. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the dispute over whether the COVID virus is real has been settled. The the the, the, the national picture was looking pretty bad Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, mm. but started upticking as of Friday when I I, I stopped having a little cough. Look, it's um, coming up two o'clock on sorry, the, sorry. Thursday the 14th of July and uh, Aisha Varel spoke just a couple of hours ago, less than an hour ago, something about the the COVID and flu response thing. And it was one of the most interesting things about it, I think. I mean, in, in effect, the, you know, tests, some free tests, free masks, a few bits and bobs, bit of an encouragement to actually do what we meant to do. The thing that was striking to me about it, I don't know what you guys think, is that we haven't had anything like that for ages. Admittedly, people have tuned out, right? So whether or not, if there had been uh, updates, 1pm briefings, whatever, whether or not people would have listened, I don't know, maybe they need to start talking about the, the nuclear possibilities that <laughs> yeah, people yeah, might yeah. sit up. But we haven't had anything for, for a, a while. Life. And it's kind of like, wow, no one's wearing masks, no one's doing this. Well, you know, there's, it's almost, <laughs> and this sort of wraps in with the political reality is that not just here, generally people don't really want to talk about it. The political parties don't really want to talk about it. We all feel just Chris exhausted wants to talk over about it, it overseas. <clears throat> I, yeah, and in a way you can sort of see that because any of the measures that are sort of sensible to take now are these kind of, you know, quite individualised ones. You know, if you want rat tests now, you can pick them up for free. You don't have to say that you've got symptoms or you're a close contact. Now, that's great. Everyone should be testing regularly, uh, particularly if they're going to see older relatives, uh, if they're going to, you know, a crowded bar or something like that. Um, but, you know, for instance, there were calls, you know, it's almost become a sort of fetishism, you know, people saying, oh, we need to go back to red. And it's like, well... 
what would that actually achieve? You know, I, I would personally like the option of deciding whether I'm, you know, going to take the risk of getting COVID to see Chris, see Chris Rock live or something of, you know, Spark Arena, as opposed to Galbraith's Boomer Bar, where I actually got it. Right. You know? But, <laughs> but even <laughs> as ever, the whatever the individual risk, the problem is once we individualise it, there is no question that the real risk is if we overwhelm our health system. Twas always this. And we have seen these calls, like that survey from the New Zealand Women in Medicine Charitable Trust, about just the level of pressure mm. that is being faced. Mm. They're overloaded. We've got into this debate, which seems to be what we do now, which is whether it is a crisis or not. Uh, you know, will Andrew Little say crisis, and then we can all, I don't know what happens then. Does it, you know, but Annabelle. It's just that unfortunate thing that we're we're literally in the worst part of the of the pandemic in New Zealand, mm. and we literally couldn't care less. Like more people, you know, a hundred New Zealanders are dying every week, and and we literally don't care anymore. And it's you know obviously brutal um, on our on our health system, but it was always going to be this way. So these health measures that have been announced are great and important. Um, probably would have been helpful to have had them a little bit earlier. Mm. Yeah, and, and also I think, you know, there's a lot in the regulatory state which is done by this kind of light-touch approach, the education approach. We see it with regulators, right? This is how, you know, Warren of Fitness testing went off the rails because the Ministry, uh, sorry, Ministry of Transport or um, uh, NZTA took a, a, a hands-off approach and they said, we're going to educate people. But, but here where, you know, there is no appetite for the you know the the, the blunt cudgel yeah. of locking down the whole country just so we can get through a few weeks of winter. Um, you would think that there would be more sort of more kind of ad- I haven't seen any social media sort of recommending mask use or recommending doing tests before you go and see old people or before yeah. you go to crowded areas, which seems remarkable to me because this you know when you are putting it on people individually. I think you do need to make that information mm. as available as possible. For some, Somehow we've gotten to the stage where most people are now choosing between calling for lockdown again forever or, you know, as I said on Twitter, you know, no masks and licking everything they can. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense to, you know, to go all in on either one of those. There's still a little bit of, of advertising around, but nowhere near as, as much as there once was. Yeah, and we saw in 2020 and 2021 the reach that they can have. Mm. And it just seems crazy that we're not reminding people, you know, wear a mask if you go mm. somewhere where you don't really yeah. want to get COVID. And <laughs> you the, know? the thing is that we, we always knew that this winter was going to be bad. So, you know, maybe some other things to protect the health system too, like literally anyone can get a free yeah. flu jab with yes. zero restrictions just to try and minimise the amount of you know, fluey people going in. But the thing is that it's not just this government's fault that our health system is failing. It's literally the fault of every single government since, like, the 1970s. I mean, at least we forget when this government took over um, that Middlemore had sewerage leaking from the walls. So, you know, we were already way behind the, the start line when this pandemic hit and, um, and imagine, you know, if we were in the middle of COVID now and Fakadi had happened, 
or some mm. other sort of horrific natural disaster, we would be in big, big trouble. It's as if everything is running to capacity, but also everybody's kind of emotional energy yeah. is at capacity. And so it feels like there's not much that can give. And, and not only did we underinvest in our hospitals and stuff, but also in our health workforce. You know, we've turned nursing into... A, a really undesirable profession because um, we're not paying them what they're, and what they're v- worth. very briefly on the nurses thing, I don't want to... Kings and queens, you guys are kings long. and queens. But, the, you know, the two-year the two year, uh, citizenship thing, that, that seems like one that they just have to say, yeah, we kind of got that one wrong, we're going to include nurses for migrant, you know? Chuck yeah, but, because there's, there's, you know, there's a very well-known... Um, it's almost like a series of vacuum tubes, you know. And this has always been the way since even before COVID that, you know, other rich countries, particularly the UK and Australia, will hoover up as many of our nurses as as we can provide. And then we, in turn, hoover up nurses from uh, poorer countries, you know, where our, you know, much lower salaries uh, than, our, than our peers are still attractive to immigrants. And what seems to be happening here is there's a blockage of of getting you know that uh, you know that immigrant workforce in uh, to replace the nurses that we train and who then eventually immediately sorry just sort of disappear overseas for higher pay. Um, and uh, yeah, the, so the government currently they they introduced um, a list of fast track occupations uh, where people could be fast tracked to citizenship. They didn't need to spend two years sort of basically being kind of bonded workers before they could apply. Um, But they excluded nurses from that. And my understanding is that's because of lobbying from the aged care industry who essentially... Really? Well, yeah. So so the argument goes that it's not not so much the cross-border movements they're worried about, but because aged care workers, uh, aged care nurses tend to earn less than DHP yeah. nurses, they're worried about the sort of porousness of the border there, that if nurses come to fill a, a vacancy in a rest home, uh, they will then mm. vacuum tube sucked to a DHB and then there's another vacancy. So yes, they essentially want As far as I can see, the government's failed to present any compelling evidence of any sort for, for having a category no, It strikes me as, indus- strikes me as industry sake, lobbying. It's not yeah. that hard. Pay people a decent wage. Let's travel the world briefly. This feels like a long time ago now, but when I first wrote it down, we've had, we've buttoned this podcast back a few times. Um, it seemed like it had just happened. Jacinda Ardern went to Europe. It was a very <laughs> quick trip. Do you remember that? Or were you it's in quite a were you in a fever at that fair. point? <laughs> <laughs> she, went, she went to Madrid and spoke Love at a, Madrid. to spoke <clears> at, <throat> at at the NATO summit as a guest, along with a bunch of other uh, Asia Pacific countries. She, she spoke to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a group specifically set up to war against Russia, <laughs> and said, "Have you guys considered disarmament? <laughs> Have we thought about giving peace a chance?" Oh, what? Well, it's a great message. Good message. Yeah. <laughs> you, you just sort of imagine they're like, "Okay, well, look." We'll put it on the whiteboard. <laughs> Thanks, Ms. Ardern. That's a great message. Next I wish she could be like that movie with the guy that like stands outside with the stereo and she could just be like blasting John Lennon's song. Yeah. Well, that is Love New that. Zealand's history and yeah. foreign policy and I'm, I'm there for it. Then she went to Brussels and uh, there was this sort of 11th hour completion of a free trade agreement 
with the EU or or a trade agreement with the EU. We don't have time to rehearse all of that, and it's been uh, traversed quite well in media. But essentially, a uh, bit of a bum deal for farmers, mostly because the idea that the French are ever going to let go of what they used to call common agricultural policy, where they basically get what they like, is not going to change in a hurry. Where a cow in a field in Britain earns more than most New Zealanders each year through EU transfers. But we did, important thing, you know, there was a lot of discussion of feta. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, I would quite like if we just sort of made all sorts of deals. Yes, we will change the name of this street. (laughs) <laughs> in exchange for more access to your market. So just kind of chuck some weird shit in there just to throw them, you know. We would like um, we would like we'll, to we'll, have we'll, one of your ships named after New Zealand and in exchange we will provide unfettered we'll call it feta, but we'll spell it the Maori way. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll change Queen Street to like... What would it be like, Roy Rue or something mm. to make French? I think we should ship get into a bit of that. That was that was sort of. I mean, does anyone have anything uh, burning to add to that? I just think it's it? weird. Like our is our farming set our dairy sector like absolutely de- delusional that they thought they were going to get like a free trade deal into Europe. Like, would we just like open the floodgates and let people start pumping manuka honey from? Yeah. From, you know, Holland this, into this, our economy. Like, guys, it was a great deal for the guys, for the ones that got good stuff like kiwi fruit and onions and all of that sort of stuff. Was nev- they were never going to get free trade for dairy. Like, they don't want your dairy. They've got their own dairy, okay? In fact, they're mount- mountains of dairy. Sort of, Stop yeah. tossing your toys. Nobody wants your dairy. That, that's, this this idea that somehow Arden could have you know nego- negotiated tougher or <laughs> you know done more of a charm offensive, and that would you know what would she would have to do is chain herself in front of a local <laughs> McDonald's to stop the farmers from driving their tractors through it and setting it on fire. This is, this is consistent with the ghetto blaster image. It's the whole, <laughs> it's the whole thing. <laughs> New Zealand is basically ad busters. Well, they, I mean, good fucking luck like getting the French, French farmers to lay down their arms. I mean, <laughs> you know, you'd have a better shot with NATO and Pewter. And like, then Ardern went on to London where Boris Johnson tried to shake her hand for about an hour clearly aware that it may be the last opportunity <laughs> to grip onto a foreign leader outside the door to number 10 Downing Street. Enough said about that. Then Australia. Let's talk briefly about that because that kind of perhaps didn't quite get the notice it might have, which was it was an, uh, a breakthrough moment to get that pathway to citizenship for New Zealanders who have been in Australia for ages. Yeah, mm. huge, huge deal. Um you know, the, that first, uh, you know, trip across the ditch uh, where she had dinner at um, Kirribilli, I think, you know, it was a bit underwhelming. I think, you know, there, there was sort of some expect that had been talked up a little bit in terms of mm. progress that we might make on, say, the 501 deportations. Um, so, and it was a little anticlimactic, but the, the, the sequel, you know, a month later, you know, incredible. Um you know, New Zealanders really do get a raw deal uh, in Australia in terms of citizenship. Mm. Um, the Australian, like like the Australian continent to humanity itself, uh, the Australian government is very hostile to New Zealand transplants coming in. Um, and, 
you would have to put this down to the personal relationship between Ardern and um, mm. Albanese, and you know all the credit. You know, there's, you, you can't uh, if if you were if you were churlish as. Um, I suppose the opposition is sort of required to be constitutionally. You would you would sort of sneer that you're making it easier for the brain drain by uh, making it easier for our yeah. best and brightest to yeah. relocate mm. for higher salaries and stuff. But you know, it's a massive win for our den. Mm. On uh, Annabelle, on leading podcast party people, mm. Shane Jones made the point that this was a thorn. You know, it was it was a terrible. A mistake that had been made to allow that to happen in the first place. Yeah, I think that lack Snafu of was his, um, yeah. was the term that he used. Eh? and he he um he had said that um Clark hadn't hadn't done enough at the time. I was thinking about that when he when he said it, and I was wondering if Clark didn't react at the time because at that time um, people living in garages and the brain drain mm. was our two big kind of. Um, Problems, and if she she wasn't too fussed about it because she thought it it might help stem the the flow. I, I don't know, but it might be a bit of a you know mm. again uh, perfect being the enemy of the good that we're talking about with the EU trade deal. You know, mm. better better that with that big uh, fault in it than no no deal at all. Well, well, that's right. I mean, it's hard to underestimate, overestimate, hard to overstate. Yeah, yeah, overstate how you know obstinate. Uh, Australian premiers mm. have been on this. Um, and, you know, I think New Zealand, you know, if you can sort of anthropomorphise countries, New Zealand governments have been victims of our sort of niceness or sense of fairness well, or whatever. We're also just just the guy with the ghetto blaster outside the that, big house. You well, know? No, but what I, mean, what I mean in reality of that. Yeah. There, 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 there's there's mm. not any, uh, but there's never any strike back. When rights have been removed from New Zealanders and Australia, yep. we haven't reciprocated yep. that mm. here. Um, is that a strategic mistake? Well, I mean, we do want, we do want skilled immigrants, you know, always. Um, so, you know, you, you could say that there's been misjudgments, you know, both mm. by um, Clark and Key, who, have, who were both mm. very straight mm. up that they would not, you know, they would not sort of, um, you know, do sort of, uh, what's the word, you know, eye for an eye stuff. Mm. Um, but look, you know, and, and, but I think that just adds to to the measure of sort of Ardern's achievement. You know, I, I didn't see anything significant coming and... Um, mm. You know, I think you know it's really starting to pay off. It's an incredible achievement, and and one that could you know work quite well for New Zealand to and the government in terms of you know um, Australian based voters and and that sort of stuff. She is now, Plus, of course, if the path to citizenship can be eased for the five hundred ones. Then they will be Australian citizens, and they won't come here to start branch <laughs> operations of well, international well, crime organisations. Well, just on that, is that now that Australia has, you know, um, softened their stance as they should in taking responsibility for the people that you know have grown up on their shores, so too should New Zealand when it comes to the Pacific, and and you know we should. Um, also act morally and not be shipping off our Pacifica whānau who get in trouble after mm. spending their yep. entire yep. lives here and shipping them back <coughs> to the a, islands. Which is our microcosm because we are we mm. are the we're not the we 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 we're, we're there the ghetto blaster to our. Have I taken that to that <laughs> no, term? Yeah. Keep going, keep going. <laughs> um, speaking of the Pacific, um, Ardern is now in Suva. The Pacific Island Forum is underway. 
I think let's park that probably and when we know what fully came out of it and talk about it in, in, our, in our next podcast. But we know that Kamala, Kamala Harris spoke uh, via link to the forum. We know that Kiribati and Marshall Islands and um, Nauru weren't there. Kiribati having uh, said that because of the, the, the debate around um, the, the Micronesians having the, the agreement that they would have the chair. Um, let's... Unless someone really, really is going to talk about it, let's, let's park that because I think that's worth a proper conversation. We should do it next time. At Z, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at z.co.nz. And move instead to Christopher Luxon, who also went on a European trip. Um, I'm less interested in that in a way than uh, this week. He's been he's had stand ups every day. Yeah. Uh, today he's in Tipuke, uh, and uh, that makes sense. You know, he's out there trying to show that he's around and available, and you fill the vacuum of domestic political news and a recess week with the prime minister away and having been away for a while. Annabelle, can you? Talk about that. Explain why a court ruling that happened in the United States of America had so many reverberations around the world, including in New Zealand, that was felt so strongly. And I'm interested to hear what you think about the response from Christopher Luxon, both on the overturn of the decision and in response to Simon O'Connor, the MP for Tamaki, who posted some love hearts on Facebook Mm. in response to... I think, I think the reason there's such a reverberation is because any time we see a, a, an egregious breach of human rights or a gross injustice, um, we have an expectation that our political leaders will speak out about it, um, you know, whether it's the Uyghurs or, you know, anything like that. We like to see our leaders, you know, um, make a strong stance on it. And, you know, 50% of the population of America has lost access to a, to a really important um, medical procedure, despite the fact that even though it's supposedly a democracy, the majority of Americans support women having access to that thing. So I think, you know, that's why. And and I think that the issue that Luxon has is that we know that he is anti-abortion. So it was always going to be, you know, of in, intense interest to the media to see how he would respond to a situation with that like that, particularly too, because we all know that at the moment National is having, um, you know, wanting to lure more women um, voters towards them. I think too, you know, there is genuine concern that um, women don't want to see the the rollback of any of those sorts of rights here. And, And while you can say it's not on the political agenda, if you know that someone genuinely believes that, you know, abortion is a bad thing, 
you are going to be concerned that somehow it may pop up on the political agenda, that, you know, something will happen where where those things start to be um, debated. So I, I wasn't surprised by the backlash at all, and I, I don't think he did a very good job of handling it. You know, he couldn't, he didn't cut it off at the pass. It just went on for days and days and days, and... Um, and I think people like Simon O'Connor, you know, they present a big problem for the National Party in contemporary Aotearoa in 2022 where you have um, men trying to tell women what they can and can't do with their bodies. I would say that they're not pro-life. I would say that they're anti-female sovereignty. Ben, what did you make of Luxon's response? I think that there's two things <clears throat> in terms of First of all, the politics around abortion in New Zealand as compared to in the United States with vast differences. Um, and look, you know, you can totally understand that people were anxious and worried when they saw this happening in the United States in the same way that probably back in the war, you know, when the war on terror happened, we, we found out about things that have been happening in Guantanamo Bay. And you sort of think, well, that's not how I imagine, you know, progress happening in the world. That's not how I imagine countries that we identify with us act as, you know, as acting. Um, you know, the, the reality is for the National Party, you know, the, the National Party does have more voters and probably more and more MPs, you know, as shown by the records, who are, you know, personally anti-abortion and who would like that, you know, who who, who, oppose, who oppose further liberalisation. We can at least say that from the voting record. And and probably if you roll on the Simon O'Connors, who would, who would probably support rolling back some rights. But then they also had, you know, if you look at their front bench, right, um, Christopher, Christopher Bishop, Nicola Willis, Eric Stanford, you know, these are, these are dyed-in-the-wool urban liberals, you know, who have the same sort of progressive politics on social issues that, you know, would make them indistinguishable from, you know, Ardern and her colleagues. So uh, the likelihood that, in, uh, you know, the conservative tradition in New Zealand is that you're always sort of rough, roughly happy with where things are on these social issues. And you say, we're in the right spot now and we don't need to go any further. Um, because, you know, bringing these issues to light is actually very, very difficult for the National Party because they have, you know, deeply held views on both sides. Uh, and, it, and it would cause just as much internal division within National, you know, much more so than in Labour where there's a, a smaller, you know, uh, anti-abortion faction and you know and and you know just in terms of the political realities you know as, as a center center right party they need to win the the middle which in particular has been women voters mm. you know for john key jacinda ardern and helen clark so i i think the politics of it is they, they won't go anywhere near it the problem that luxon the, the mistake luxon made and it was a bad one was that he started talking about his personal feelings. Mm. Instead of talking about what the policy was, he made it an inbounds debate about his personal feelings mm. about the act of abortion. And he was sort of, he allowed himself to be led into agreeing with a statement that it was the same as murder, which is obviously an extremely insensitive thing to say. Uh, it doesn't accord with what I think the vast, vast, vast majority of people, including people who, you know, are sort of uh, more kind of, you know, uh, I guess anti-abortion, you know, think of, you know, it as. And, I, you know, I, it's a, I think it's a bad place for the politics to go in general because, 
you know, do do we want to get into a position of asking Nanaya Mahuta, you know, to explain exactly when she thinks life begins, you know, during, you know, and 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 at what point does it become homicide? At what point does it become, become the ending of a life? I, I think you're getting into, you know, getting into interrogating people's souls on these issues is only ever going to cause a great deal of division and... You know, I think as long as we trust what politicians are saying about their policies um, on specific issues, if they've ruled things out, that's pr- that that accords, I think, more with the way that we have treated these issues in New Zealand politics in the past than in America, where this sort of thing, where you know, abortion in particular, Roe versus Wade, has been right at the centre of their politics for forty years. You know, Donald Trump campaign saying, I will appoint judges who will overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, it was a surprise when it happened even in America, because again, you know, you think that this sort of thing is inviolable. You think, how could anyone roll back the clock on something as obvious as this in a developed country? But, you know, it was right out there in the open that that was the plan. We're getting to that period in the political cycle where we've got conferences, AGMs coming up in the eve of an election year, and of course these things become a bit more loaded, sort of we start to focus a bit more on different electoral combinations and so on. Te Party Māori had uh, their AGM, I think it was, mm. um, in, uh, in Rotorua maybe, and that was interesting, Annabelle, John Tamihere, the recently appointed president, um, the young buck. Who would have guessed? Who could have seen that coming? He was yeah. picking up all the, all the young people that were there, there gathered together. Um, the party's obviously in reasonably good spirits mm. and shape um, and hoping to get two members or more. I want to talk about um, uh, about the petition on uh, Te Matatini, but first, just quickly, going back to... Party People podcast, mm. highly recommended. Um, I was interested to hear Shane Jones again hint at the possibility of deals in the Māori seats with mm. Labour and the Māori Party. And that would, I mean, it, I think it's probably a long shot, but it is would be interesting to see what happens if mm. it's looking like the Labour Act block versus the Labour mm. Green block, but Labour Green just need a couple more, whether or not they would consider some mm. kind of accommodations in order to get over that 50%. I think, um, I think you know, we've talked about it here, I think that would probably be the smart thing to do. I think there'd be enormous, enormous resistance to it. And I think the Māori Party are in good shape and they, they may actually feel reluctant to do some mm. deals because I think they're kind of like in that confident teenager stage of the electoral cycle where um, they can see that they're making progress. Uh, on party people, actually, Matua Shane said that they hadn't got a lot of runs on the board, but I disagree. I think they've done a very good job from opposition and they've been good at cherry-picking certain issues and, and running with them. The thing that interested me about the Huiato was the youthful lineup of really impressive um, influential Māori movers and shakers and I think it really signals a change in the Māori party which had become this quite sort of embittered party of Komatua mm. who had their axes to quite personal axes to grind against people like Helen Clark um, to the new 
fresh Māori party that we're seeing and recognising too that a lot of the people who are now eligible to vote um, were pepe, you know, when um, when the foreshore and seabed stuff happens. So, you know, the motivation isn't about so much um, all of that mummy and riri around that terrible piece of legislation, but more kind of aspirational looking. Um, people like Julia Faiporti, all of those ones, um, you know, hugely influential with with um, with our people and with our young people, and we're a young population. I think what's a really important next step for the Māori Party is having your people on the ground who are going to pick rangatahi up and take them to the to the polling booths because that's where it always comes unstuck. Our people love a hui, love a wānanga, love a movement, those sorts of things. But in terms of our youth, it's actually getting them to show up on the day. So that's going to be a key part of the strategy. And I, de- I think that JT's really hitting his straps and he, he's where he should be. He's not like, I think, sort of, dealing with people, you know, being a politician and a spokesperson, it's not his strong suit, but I think being an organiser and a strategist and kind of accepting his elder statesman position is working really well for him and the Māori Party. Yeah, the Tamahiri presidency is very interesting, right, in the sense that, you know, there's been this talk about Peter Goodfellow departing from National, Mm. probably long overdue. And there departing, but not departing. Yeah, like departing, right. but not departing. Yeah. <laughs> and they, the the, you know, Goodfellow, you know, seen as important for kind of you know organising billboards and you know running the candidates college. Tamahiri is you know much more integral, I think, to the Maori Party in terms of political strategy mm. and policy. You mm. know, probably than I think any um, president of any political party uh, would be. And, uh, it, it, you know, I'm interested in whether there is a tension and if there is a tension, how it plays out between his kind of uh, urban Māori, pan Māori sort of model of providing services and advoca- advocacy versus somebody like Debbie Nari Wapaka, who's very iwi, you mm. know, she's very about sort of, you know, devolving locally to the local iwi to do things. Um and, and I think, you know, and, and those, in a way, those sort of <clears throat> look at two sort of different models of, you know, the Crown Māori relationship, I think, uh, which, you know, are sometimes under a bit of strain in this government. Uh, and, you know, you, you will certainly see it, you know, an ACT national government definitely, you know, is, is probably, you know, you can, you know, Tamahiri could, you know, argue the toss either way, but... You know, Tamahiri has never been big into that sort of constitutionalism stuff. You know, he really he, he really is into that kind of devolution, mm. service provision, mm. on the ground kind of thing. Mm. Where you know, where the Māori Party, Māori, Māori, Māori stuff. yeah, where the Māori Party got a lot of stick in its previous incarnation for sort of looking a bit too much at sort of highfalutin UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights versus you know housing, mm. medical care, mm. that kind mm. of thing. Yeah. Um, and, and this incarnation of the Māori Party, I think, you know, the bratty teen sort of analogy is quite apt because they have been very confrontational, they've been very aggressive, they've been about lifting their profile. Um, 
and and they haven't really delivered a lot in the way of sort of you know kind of serious policy you know because that hasn't been their strategy their, their, yeah, their strategy that's right. you know, there's no point doing that in opposition exactly but it will be interesting to see how that plays out next year when they do have a good shot mm. of being part of a government and they will be you know actually rolling out you know mm. what do they stand for in terms of a government doing and things. I think too you know recognizing in terms of that, that, that they are two fresh politicians. Like, it's not like, you know, when um, Winston and Toe went to Parliament and Toe was a new MP, but he had the he had Winston to lean on, like, these guys are totally fresh in there. So I think for two fresh MPs, they've done a really good job. And like you say, the policy hasn't been there. There's not a lot you can do from the, well, to be fair, look at Matidia. She worked all sorts of incredible magic from the opposition benches, but um, but not in her first year. So uh, um, I think, you know, you're right, next year will be an important one to see what they come up with. They've also just proved very good at doing politics, you know, just uh, getting it, exactly. picking the issues, doing the right things. And I think this Tiamatini petition is another one because it is it's very hard, very hard to launch a counter-argument to, hey, this is a kapahakataonga and it's getting, compared to the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, the Royal New Zealand Ballet, like what, like a fifth or something of the funding? I don't even think it's that. I think, it, like, New Zealand Ballet gets about $20 million, And if, you know, they did a really clever press release with all of the numbers broken down. Yeah. If you worked it out so that Kapahaka was getting funded to the same tune as, as New Zealand Ballet for... Um, you know, spectators and participation and all of that, that you'd be having to fund Kapahaka at $227 million a year mm. to have equity. They only get, um, I think it's like $2.7 I mean, it's the most bizarre thing. It's literally, in my mind, a contemporary treaty claim waiting to happen. How on earth can you justify the cultural supremacy and elitism of shelling out huge amounts of money for the Royal New Zealand Ballet and and New Zealand Symphony Orchestra. And I don't begrudge them a cent. Like, good on them, that's great. But how can you fund Te Matatini at such a low level? The, the thing that, the reason I'm passionate about it is because Kapahaka is just the most incredible vehicle for our for our people. You don't have to be five foot and five stone to participate. From our babies right through to our komatua, fat, tall, skinny, short, whatever, urban Māori, non-real speaking Māori, everyone can participate and it does the most wonderful things in our communities. It, you know, all sorts of incredible health messages, education, tourism, it adds so much value not only to our wairua and our general well-being, but, you know, the economic potential that's wrapped up in kapahaka is incredible. If you just look at cultural tourism alone and what that's worth to New Zealand, and that we underfund it so poorly in favour of ballet, and no one is flying to New Zealand to watch the ballet. No international visitors are flying halfway around the world to watch the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, even though I'm sure you guys are awesome, because they can get it great in their own country. What they can't get is that 
as cultural performances that are indigenous to New Zealand and they do fly around the world for that stuff. So why aren't we investing more in it? It makes no sense. It's a great kaupapa for um, the Māori Party to dig into and I'd love to see someone lodge a, a Treaty of Waitangi claim about it as well. It's All the numbers are there in black and white. It, it is a it is a clever gambit because by comparing it on a sort of you know per audience capita basis or participation to the NZSO and the ballet, you you, you really get this comparison that like very few things short of a, a French dairy cow could actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, because they, you know they, they, these are very expensive organisations. Um, and, you know, they have very high overheads. They have to have full-time staff. You know, the ballet, you know. We need all of that which, too, but we have to a, do it voluntarily. Ballet people aren't, even, a, pay, aren't even paid well. But know, also they, has they, a they, reputation, not always deservedly of being a patrician patrician pursuit, right? Yeah, I mean, golden, yeah. I know it's a golden age in New Zealand arts. I don't want to argue We can get Finlayson on the phone to talk about the, the crucial importance <laughs> of safeguarding these let's cultural towns well, like, so New Zealand-based <laughs> <laughs> My babies do ballet. My mum was a ballerina yeah, yeah. We as well. We love that ballet. More than Mary. Do you remember when there was... Do you remember the 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 New Zealand the Royal New Zealand Ballet did a, a season of um it was like the piano they did a ballet version of the piano mm. like the Michael Nyman stuff no like the um the Holly Hunter oh, like they, they, oh, yeah. they did yeah. Chop, yeah. chopping off fingers yeah and um but I think they I think they had a French a new French director of the company and. And and the, and the and, and I think his plan for the early rehearsals was to have all the ballet dancers like blackface. Oh my <laughs> god! And for, fortunately, it wasn't. You know, fortunately, the ballet is not quite as patrician and cut off as it used to be. And then they, they put the kibosh on that really quickly. Just just to let you know, there is some cultural responsiveness happening in these institutions. But yeah, look, I, I mean, look, th- this is an obvious populist winner for. Um, for the Māori Party, because yeah, like, you know, obviously there's certainly a disparity of funding between these organisations, and it's not necessarily that Tamatatini is being underfunded. Ben, uh, Ben, <laughs> quickly, uh, but just before we go, just before we go, uh, ACT had their uh, conference on the weekend too, and David Seymour took the stage and laid down the gauntlet of the first hundred days of a national ACT government, and it and it is it is one of those things which didn't seem far fetched. I thought it was interesting in a way because sometimes. You get the smaller parties go and stand up at conferences and say, "When we are the government, these are the things we will do." You know, or give that impression. Would you reckon we are never going to be the government? Future conference (laughs) once with (laughs) Peter Dunn and you know thirty people in the room, and he's like, "As part of the next government, we will." But yeah, laying out policies for everything, this and the other, and there was a it it showed that how it is a very real thing, you know. And I mean, probably almost odds on, not odds on. I don't even know what that means. My gambling terminology is not good, but there's a very, very real. Chance, good chance, maybe the, the maybe the most likely from the polls at the moment formation of government is a national act coalition, a proper coalition, which act hasn't been part of before. What did you make of that list of demands? What did you make of the way it's shaping up now? When we've got what are we thinking? Like fifteen months ago? Yeah, probably what you'd expect from them. Um, you know, really honing in on those uh, issues where they've made a lot of hay. Uh, you know, three waters. Um, Fair pay agreements, uh, the health reforms, I think, 
health yeah. reforms in general? Yeah, yeah. Or just get, not get, get rid authority. of the Maori Health yeah. Authority. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they don't want to bring back the DHB. No. <laughs> um, yeah, it, it, pretty much what you'd expect from ACT. And look, they, they will have more uh, bargaining power. I think you wrote a good piece on the spin-off about this this week. Um, but look, ultimately, you know, a 7% party or even 10% party doesn't get to to dictate, you know, how a government goes. But the, the thing is, what they're talking about are things that that, that are broadly simpatico with national yeah, anyway. Yeah. National have also said that they'll reverse three waters and that they'll do a tour of regional New Zealand throwing yeah. out U-bends and faucets to give the <laughs> infrastructure back to the people. Well, I, I think that's one of the other <laughs> things that are, play, that are the way it plays from now, interestingly, on both sides of the equation, because, because everybody who votes for Labour or Green is voting for a Labour-Green coalition after the election. Yeah. Everybody who votes for National Act is voting for a National mm. Act coalition after the election. It's just a question of how strong you want each version each in terms flavor. of the direction it goes, yeah, right? Like and a so, double shot or a single shot. Exactly. And so you follow it through and then surely the incentive to some degree, although you want to have your own identity, although you want to be conviction politicians, although you want all those things, is for the smaller parties on the outriggers not to make life hell for the, for the bigger party and therefore and therefore make them have to spend the entire election talking about the more far-out policies. Yeah, all, I mean, all, the, the thing, though, is that David Seymour is a real is a much smarter politician than than Luxon, so I wouldn't like I wouldn't underestimate how much he'll be able to negotiate for um, for for act. And, I mean, the thing I'm I'm regressing, but just in terms of Luxon, like the speech about you know dissing New Zealand business, I'm like this is a guy who's essentially been a corporate bureaucrat. He's no entrepreneur. He's not Stephen Tyndall. Goes and talks smack about our businesses overseas. These are your guys. I mean, bro, this is your. I mean, you're talking to, smack about look, your that. own people, and then you you're like a bit uh, like a, <laughs> a corporate bureaucrat, and like literally your your own money. You just pour it into real estate. That like, was that bro, was you a, that was a dumping so, I, I listened to that whole speech. I watched, I watched that whole speech, and that was in the Q and A afterwards. And he wasn't out there panning New Zealand businesses. That's not a fair representation of the speech. But he he said, he said a dumb thing, but he was in a he was talking about how you know New Zealand had become used to the public hand you know the hand I don't know what language he used, but then to use that language, yeah, you know you're in a think tank over in Westminster, you feel like it's to a group of but but it was just those are those little things those are the, the, those are the little moments, things and in yeah. and itself, in and of itself I don't I think it's probably been blown out of proportion a bit once you get. Add up five, six, or seven of those. That's where you got to be careful, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's a, uh, it's, it's, it's bloody hard. But you'll see when you listen. You know, the, the keys of the Ardern's managed to avoid the, saying yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. When, when Ardern did her Chatham House speech, she also did like a very long Q and A, yeah. and just perfectly on note on message. And that that's a, that's a skill that Luxon needs before the campaign yeah, next year. Yeah, I don't think it is being blown out of proportion because when you've got a prime minister that's just gone and like smoked all of these international gigs and got us free trade agreements and you know the five hundred one thing and all of that, and then you've got the leader of the opposition who's like making these really naive blunders that then get milked for days in the media at a time where New Zealand is really you know needing to make a big economic recovery from COVID. I think that it's it, like 
Ben says, it's going to be that death from a million cuts thing, but I think the love affair with Luxon is, is starting to come to an end. Uh, we haven't had a poll for a while. We've had Rory Morgan, but um, it's, been, no, it's been but minutes. Else. It's yeah. been a minute. There must be a, one of those taxpayer union courier ones coming up because I think they got a got the, the ratepayers alliance. But oh yeah, yeah, know, that's right. They were, uh, that's the, that's so, the extra. Yeah. But anyway, this is just dissolving this podcast. I think we should just end it. Yeah, we'll just stop doing it. Stop. Just stop doing it. Stop it. Kia ora e te iwi, Kiaihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.